0: Can you now tell, having seen and interviewed over close to 400 people, which ones are going to work? Like, can you give us a sense of, you know, what is the Chris Mitchell smell test?
1: Welcome to episode 418 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. This is Rai Markitilio-McCracken here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Today, Christopher talks with Isfandair Shaheen, also known as Asfi. Asfi is the founder and CEO of Net Equity Networks. Asfi has been on the podcast before. He and Christopher talked on episode 351 about the spillover effect of fiber networks in areas like public works and agriculture. They talked about how high bandwidth connections can reduce municipal labor overhead, allow companies to do predictive maintenance on expensive machines, and give farmers way more information about how their crops are doing in the field. Asfi is one of the great minds thinking about bold new strategies to expand high quality internet access across the globe. We asked him to interview Christopher because Christopher has a big ego. Unfortunately, in his excitement to be interviewed by Asfi, Christopher messed up the recording of quality by using a USB hub that introduced some noise. We hope it's not too bad, and Christopher promises he won't do it again. Asfi asks Christopher about his childhood, the state of broadband coverage and policy today, and the Christopher Mitchell smell test for new networks. Now, here's Christopher talking with Asfi.
0: Welcome to the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. In case you're wondering who's this guy who doesn't sound like Chris Mitchell, my name is Isfandiar Shaheen. I go by Asfi and I have been given the rare honor to interview Chris Mitchell and I uh, totally jumped at this opportunity because Chris is someone I have, we've all uh, heard from, he's taught us so much. Today is an opportunity to learn about Chris Uh, and so um, Chris we we a lot of your listeners I think you're now approaching three four hundred episodes almost Uh, we know you as uh, Mr. Community Broadband (laughs) Bits but you know the question I've been uh, aching to ask and learn about is the person behind Chris Mitchell or the person at that before you became involved with ILSR. So I'd actually like to start by understanding the first time you ever logged on to the internet. Tell us about that time. Tell us about yourself at that time. And uh, I'd love to understand your relationship with the internet uh, before we get into uh, the rest of our conversation.
2: Absolutely. I think that's a uh... It's a good challenging first question. The question about my first experience—it really comes down to a definitional issue, actually, in some ways. Um, and, and I think it, when I, you gave me a, a, some questions to to think a little bit about before, so I was trying to figure out how to how to talk about this. And I think it's worth. So I, when I grew up, um, when I was very young, my father repaired small electronics. And then he got laid off and I was about six or seven or so. He went back, he started a community college and he found out he was actually pretty good at it. And so he went and got a college degree in dealing with computers. And then he got a master's actually after that, all of which was done in like, like he was taking double class loads and things like that. Well, my mom, who's a nurse, uh, supported the family. And worked what we call triple doubles, which is an incredible amount of work. Which all just which to say is that I actually am a rare like working class kid who had computers in the home. Um, I grew up around electronics. I grew up you know with uh, with a with a computer after I was like maybe ten or eleven. We had a computer in the in our home in the late eighties. And so I was on Prodigy back before the internet was commercialized. And I remember just trying to figure out what you could do. Um, I mean, I I think, you know, for a lot of people, they like to catch up on sports and stuff like that or talk to other people. And I don't even really remember what I was doing on prodigy except for being fascinated that I could talk to different people and things like that. And now if you fast forward a bit, I, I do remember when we had our first internet connection and I was learning, you know, how you, how the dial up worked and things like that. This would be probably like 93, 94, and I just remember talking with friends of mine that had, that were, that had been using it a little bit longer and being like, well, okay, I'm on the internet now. How do I find things? And Webcrawler was the browser, was the search engine of the day. And so I definitely remember, you know, just going around there and then... For me, I, I got in. I wanted to create stuff. I started building websites. Um, view source was the most amazing thing because every web page you could see how they did something. And so when people came along with like multi-column formats where you had like a left sidebar, I remember just studying it and being like, "Oh, tables! Like I need to learn how tables work." And and you could just do it by looking at how people did things, you know. And then eventually, I got I started getting in, not in trouble, I would say, because I had good teachers at the high school I went to. But um, you know, when I started being able to do independent research. I was looking into um, things like the um, School of the Americas, in which the United States was training people, ostensibly mostly from Latin America. And in, in what we were supposed to be doing was teaching them about the importance of civilian rule and, and democratization and things like that. And unfortunately, many of them um, learned other lessons, which I think were also taught there. And, and they began... Um, uh, mass killings and, and torture squads and things. in And I was in high school, and I'm just sort of like finding this stuff on the Internet. And I'm, I'm, half of me is like, is this real? You know, when they published the actual training manuals from Fort Benning, I would report on them in school. And I think a lot of the kids probably thought I was a conspiracy theory nut. Um, and my teachers were also sort of interested in the Internet. And so they encouraged me, and I... I tried to learn how to do better research and sort fact from fiction but you know in some ways I feel like I just hit a lot of the lessons everyone has learned but I hit them a little bit earlier and I I mean I just never wanted to to stop I I remember having arguments with friends about they were, they, some of them thought it was dumb that I was on email and trying to email people. And they're like, no one uses email, <laughs> you know? And so I, I don't know. Like I have a lot of different memories. I mean, I learned about networking by trying to set up doom two LAN parties, um, you know, and trying to do uh, four people in a basement with these like large computers and these big, heavy monitors and like <laughs> and guarding this stuff around um, in order to, to play this, um, you know, game where we'd shoot each other Um four person, you know, to be t- well, actually it was all I think it was everyone for themselves at that point um, so you know I just i I've, I've loved it i I had a business in which I was designing websites and doing some server administration I'd volunteered with different um, efforts over the years to um, provide like independent media that was non corporate um, and and I learned a lot of server administration that way so i feel like the internet is it's, in some ways it's just it was a part of my my late childhood and in teens growing up and i've just mm-hmm. always been very active on it
0: amazing and and chris is a lovely memories of doom by <laughs> the way i mean I, I don't know if you i brought back like my memories of using that cheat code iddqd which is on god mode um i don't want to get distracted by conversations about doom um Tell us a bit geographically where you grew up and what point you realized that internet access is so unequal, Like, uh, and also tell us a bit about what the status of internet connectivity is in areas where well, you grew up. Well, I
2: grew up in eastern Pennsylvania, um, near Allentown, Pennsylvania. I lived in Allentown for a while. My family moved out. Yeah. And then um, in, um, I think it was 92 or 91, we moved to Minnesota. I always forget which. Um, we moved to Rochester, Minnesota. Um, and that became, you know, sort of my love affair for Minnesota. I've lived here ever since. Um, I I think I learned a lot and being in Eastern Pennsylvania shaped me, but um, I, I love Minnesota. Um, you know, in, for most of the time that um, I've not lived in the Twin Cities, in St. Paul specifically, um, the internet was, I would say, fairly equally distributed in that anyone who had a telephone line could have could have the same access as anyone else. Um, Although for some people, they would have had to dial long distance to connect, perhaps. It's only really with, after the, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, where speeds varied by geography in many ways. Although, you know, there was work in in rural areas to set up modem pools for dial-up back in the day. Um, And so, you know, I would say the the access was more about having the literacy and the devices historically. Um, But I've lived in St. Paul, Minnesota for um, since I went to college here. So that's almost uh, 25 years now. Um, And in that time, um, we've certainly seen Internet access um, because the speed has gotten so much faster in some areas, but not others. It's more of a recent phenomenon where you have this lack of access.
0: Tell us a bit about that that moment that time in your life when that first instance when you first realized that wow this is that access that access is so unequal that there is this rural urban divide like what was that point and like that's the point i want to capture in this conversation uh, the point where right before uh, you you took up this this mantle um, at uh, ILSR
2: i i don't know if i really So, I mean, right before I started ILSR, I was in grad school at the University of Minnesota um, and Mm -hmm. studying public policy and science and technology policy specifically. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: In that time, I was really focused on energy policy because um, I went to grad school not really knowing what I would be doing, but the advisor that I got um, assigned to uh, was brilliant um still is brilliant <laughs> um and and she was really in energy policy and so in her classes I feel like were the hardest and she was the most challenging she was an it was actually her first year as a professor she'd come from um EPA where she'd worked um, both in the in the private sector previously I think and in government and was very interested in energy policy and I just, I mean, it was We always it was the classic drinking from a fire hose. Um, when I talked to her a few years ago, she said that she's cut the assigned work in half and people still complain it's overwhelming. And I, I don't believe it. I mean, it was, it was a very fast two years. Um, when I came out, I, I jumped into ILSR because I was interested in information technology. And that's, in some ways, the question I went to grad school with that was really bugging me was, was not so much about internet access. It was about... How it could be that in the year in the early two thousands we had more access to information than at any other time in the human history, and yet a significant number of Americans believed that Saddam Hussein was involved in nine eleven, and it, it just drove me nuts because it's a basic fact that wasn't even really in. I mean, some people would dispute. Oh, they'd try to come up with reasons to tie Osama bin Laden to Saddam Hussein, but it just drove me nuts because it struck me as someone who I'd studied the middle East had been fascinated by us policy in the middle East. And it was just this thing that was like, so obvious that those two events were not linked. And then to see that ignorance help push us toward a war, um, in which, you know, uh, ruined the lives of millions of people in the middle East, uh, hundreds of thousands of Americans, um, were certainly touched directly, um, so I was interested in how people were using the internet, and um, I had this opportunity to take over this program at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, uh, which I was totally unprepared for, <laughs> but, um, but I, I found uh, myself having, um, you know, surrounded by really good people here, um, I think almost all of whom are still here um, at the Institute. We have wonderful um, levels of long-term, um, you know, um, we don't have very much turnover, Um, But it was probably during that time when I started to more appreciate how service was so uneven and and what the implications of that would be over time.
0: Amazing. Um, That is that that's that's super, super insightful, Chris. I mean, my uh, you know, even though I I can't vote in this country yet, um, one of my big hopes for you is to. Someday see you as uh, the chairman of the FCC, <laughs> and <No. laughs> uh, I think that with all sincerity, because I think, I think, I mean, there just very few people who understand the heartache of rural America better than you do. And uh, I want, want to ask: when the the first loaded question I want <laughs> to ask you is that if by some stroke of luck I had the power to make you FCC chairman. What are three actions that you would take immediately?
2: There's people who will say, oh, you know, I, would, I wouldn't want to be the chair of the FCC. Like, I think that what I'm doing is what I'm very well suited for. And so I appreciate your question. And I'm going to and I'll answer it honestly. But I'll say that I don't think I would be a good chair of the FCC. I think there's people who have the right qualities. I think I'm I'm well suited to be doing the kind of stuff I am. And I think it's important that people do have a, a sense that not everyone would be a good president. Not everyone would be a good chief of staff. Um, with that said, I would like to think that one of the first things I would do is is set in place processes for publicizing real data, um, real data that would ena- enable markets to function better. Um, and that would include pricing so that we could see where the worst problems are. It would be address level you know, availability, where the, where the services are available. Um, and these are things that, um, not the pricing, which the FCC does not seem likely to do, but they will be doing better mapping. But I think it's really important that a regulatory agency publishes data. Government needs to publish accurate data that people can make plans on and entrepreneurs can work around and cities can, you know, make policy based on. I'd like to support experiments, um, things that wouldn't necessarily happen in... Um, the country otherwise or the things that are happening slowly. You know, I I think the FCC has the ability to encourage um, certain types of networks to see what the results are and what happens at scale. So um, open access, I'd like to see money for um, open access networks to see what the results are, how it changes markets um, and what the implications are. And I'd like to see more experiments around spectrum. Um, What can we do with more spectrum sharing and things like that to get more out of This resource. A final thing. Um, is a culture shift the f c c is is built up around regulating and and kind of misperceives the country as being um run by a t and t and comcast and charter and if you look at for instance who 's invested in rural america it 's hundreds maybe more than a thousand small companies it 's cooperatives it 's um you know municipalities um the big companies have been absent, and we still see states and the federal government trying to figure out how to get money to the big companies. And I think that's the wrong direction. Um, And and so I would be trying to make sure that FCC policy encourages and recognizes that um, telecommunications should now be about overlapping networks, not one giant centralized network or three giant centralized networks, but many overlapping networks that are, you know, providing resiliency through the same way the internet does. I'm hoping we have a new FCC chair come, um, you know, spring next year that in many, many cases, circumstances set the agenda for the chair of an agency like that. And I think you can go in saying, these are the three things I'm going to do. And maybe you can do one thing, but fundamentally, you're going to be responding to whatever happens um, on your watch.
0: Amazing. And I I think I'd like to drill a bit deeper, Chris, into uh, the fourth Mm -hmm. point you raised, which is, you know, for the communications regulator to go beyond the scale network operators and to think about uh you know um where um uh quality coverage is lacking um i i feel like the the point about accurate data has been discussed plenty in your 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 discussions before so i won't delve deeper there but i would like to go a bit deeper i mean for me frankly as as an observer uh, of 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 connectivity looking at maps published by you and you're looking at maps published by the FCC and then traveling uh, to some of the conferences where you are a regular uh, speaker. Uh, it was quite an eye opener to see the disconnect for myself. And so um, my question I want to ask you is like, you've been following this um uh, initiatives by municipalities by cooperatives by by smaller uh, uh, operators to you know make connectivity uh, uh, happen in rural areas and and a lot of times it is through fiberization and, and I mean I, I, I say I so I mean I use fiberization as something that's synonymous with improving connectivity but certainly not attached to that being the holy grail and the only option broadly I want to ask you that you know when you look at Genuine uh, initiatives uh, in uh, that are happening in rural America, and particularly as it relates to fiberization, are they currently happening faster or slower than you had anticipated, say three years ago? And and I'd like you to uh, remember some of you do this lovely uh, uh, show where you um, look back at forecasts and predictions with some of your colleagues, and then you kind of see what did I get right, what did I get wrong? So you do you guys do that annually but if you were to take like a 3 to 5 year view on you know what were you thinking 5 years ago uh you know like give us a bit of a broader time horizon perspective uh are things going faster or slower love to hear
2: Depending on the issue both I think um I say both because I thought that we would be further along and I think to some extent it was um incorrect reading of what was possible given supply chains and things like that I mean even if let's say that someone came along and Bezos said, I'm going to liquidate my entire wealth right now. And we're just going to build rural broadband and it still take a while. (laughs) Um, So in some ways slower, but on the other hand um, we're in such a better position right now. You know, it, it was about last year when I realized that the small independent telephone companies were really pushing hard into fiber and high speed services Uh, And I hadn't noticed it. It had happened before a year ago um, where where there was sort of a tipping point. And, and in my mind, I was still thinking back to maybe like five years ago when the telephone companies reacted with hostility to the idea that DSL wasn't good enough. Um, in many cases, and they laughed at, at the idea of a gigabit. Um, you know, nobody needed it, was their argument. They'd like to make fun of Google, um, and they still do. <laughs> you know, but independent telephone companies have really you know, gone. There's, there's always been some, you know, it's always been like 10, 15% of the independent telephone companies that have been very forward thinking. Um, and, and that includes a number of the cooperatives, but now it, it seems like most of the independent telephone companies have, have gotten it for a while that they need a higher quality product. They need to deliver very high quality speeds. Um, and so I think that's very good for rural America. Um, and then, you know, the electric cooperatives coming online is just, it's remarkable. It seems like it's probably not every week on average, but I mean, I think I've seen three announcements in the last week or two alone of of Southern electric cooperatives deciding to commit to fiber. Uh, some of that may be with plans of getting um, auction from this FCC auction that's coming up, the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund. Um, but I, I really think that much of rural America is going to be covered in the next five to seven years. Um, And I think it's going to take longer for some other areas, um, in part because what do you do if you have like a part of, let's just say, Kansas, and no one is stepping up to cover it? Um, You know, it's hard to figure out how you solve that problem. And, And I think often the regulator answer at the state and the federal level has been satellite, (laughs) <laughs> um but we need to entice someone to expand and and if that means a cooperative well that cooperative probably has to expand its own service internally first and make sure all of its customers are covered before they can then expand to a new area where they haven't historically served and so this could take a while to work some of that out but i i don't think of rural broadband as a as a puzzle anymore. Um, rural broadband is something that needs money. We know how to solve it, more or less. Um, you know. Um, but you look at something like um, the challenge in urban areas with um, where there's already cable service, but it's unaffordable. That's a political nightmare because of the power of the cable companies to solve it. And, and I think that's the hardest challenge we have in broadband today. That
0: is fascinating. I think that's the first time I've heard you talk about Uh, the upcoming challenge in urban areas. Uh, But before I go there, um, you've seen so many initiatives, right? Like you've seen co-ops, you've seen munis, you've seen small telecom operators. I mean, so I'm going to just bundle them all into, you know, I would call them affordable connectivity initiatives in markets that are not traditionally cut by large corporations. Can you now tell, having seen and interviewed over close to 400 people which ones are going to work like can you give us a sense of you know what is the chris mitchell smell test like you see something i'm sure you have a good gut instinct now you're like you see something and you're like i can see these guys pulling through you see some and you're like i don't think i don't think this, this is this is issues what is that chris mitchell smell test help us understand that
2: <laughs> well i I appreciate the praise. I think I, I've tried to develop my smell test in, in part by looking at people that actually have a lot more experience than me. I mean, consultants that um, have often been very open with me, um, perhaps after a drink at a conference. <laughs> um, you know, that's where I've I've learned quite a bit as well in terms of what they see happening. And, um, and there's two things that I immediately look for, I think. Um, one is, Um, in particular for any kind of a project is uh, what is the financing plan? If the financing plan is we're going to find someone that's just going to give us free money and we're going to keep hoping to find that, then that doesn't seem very realistic. Whereas if a financing plan is, okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to bond for this amount. We're going to borrow that amount. We're going to take some sort of risk. We have, we've had these important discussions in which we're putting skin in the game in a meaningful way. Um, To me, that suggests a level of responsibility that suggests more likelihood of success. And the other piece of it is, and this is more true of municipal broadband than 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 a very rural cooperative type approach, is the marketing plan. Um, Most of the municipal broadband networks that have been accused of failure, um, the ones that have actually failed, um, a lot of them it's a marketing issue where they have a superior product. They probably have a reasonable price for it, but they are not getting the word out and they're not attracting people with an effective marketing campaign. And so I want to have a CSI that people are taking that seriously whether it's just, you know, educating people about how to use it, or the importance of going with a community led initiative, um, you know, or, or what is what is their their approach um, to doing that. Um, and I and I and I think, you know, a lot of times I'm only talking to one or two people from a community. And so it's hard for me to really get a deep sense of what's happening. But looking for some level of community buy in is a part of, of both of those, I think, you know, if it's, if it's like two people that have a really good idea, even if they're really smart and really capable, um, you know, if, if they haven't done the work on the finance, if they don't have a good marketing plan, it's often a sign that even if they have the right analysis, it's not necessarily going to go anywhere. Awesome.
0: So share with us an example of one very cool uh, financing or funding technique that you've seen. And one very cool marketing technique that you've seen of all the areas that you've covered, like what stands out top of mind, cool financing play, cool marketing play of everything out of everything that you've seen.
2: Well, I really like the way RS Fiber um, structured their, their financing. We wrote a report on it called Fertile Fields. It's a broadband cooperative out of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has had some challenges in that uh, they have seed capital. Half of it was provided by a loan from the cities, and that helped to unlock the rest of the loan through a complex arrangement that we discussed, but basically is that the cities have paid a portion of the cost but absorbed almost all of the risk. And I like the creativity there um now, in part because of some challenges that they had uh they had to make good on that, and they had to um they've had to use tax dollars to supplement the network in the first two years that they had to pay debt because they had not hit all of their their goals for uh revenue um, and When that happened, I was at the meeting where they voted to for the cities to to pay that out of the the levy. And the only questions that were asked were, well, when is the network going to expand? (laughs) You know, people weren't upset. They still viewed the network as being a very good deal for the community. And that is because there was a lot of community buy-in and and work that had been done. Um, But I think too many people think, oh, can we bond for 100% of this network? Or can we get a grant for 50% of the network? When you should be thinking, you know, maybe we can build... This network over here in this way, and maybe we can arrange different financing in that way, which is, as I would say, my my criticism more largely fits together with um, this idea that too many places are trying to figure out how to do something all at once or using only one mechanism. And I think a lot more communities would be better served if they tried something incremental rather than just trying to figure out how to do it all at once. So that's the, the a fi- a financing model that I think is really good is that model of of trying to piece together different financing arrangements um, that fit together nicely. And in terms of a, a great marketing, I... I go back to uh, Kyle Hollifield, who's been on the show a few times he's been um is someone who's taught me a lot over the years he was a, he's a marketer and um and he would talk about how um you know his marketing strategy really built on the utility as a whole in the community and so this would be relevant for electric utilities or municipalities that also do other services because in many cases people don't have a choice for some of your services and so it's weird to think of how to advertise that but what you want to do is you want to create a, a feeling of community. And so one of the things that one of these places did was they would sponsor like equipment for sports teams for kids. And the reasoning was that he put it to me was, you know, when when grandma gets a knock at the door and someone says, hey, I can knock $20 off your – your, your internet bill or your cable bill um, if you go with us um, you know grandma's thinking yeah but but my grandchild's wearing soccer cleats that they got from the utility and my loyalty is with the utility um, and so I just think it's not a billboard you know it's you know it's this sense of of community that is being built and I I think it's a challenge to do that and in, in, you know just throwing soccer cleats that every family isn't going to do it in every community but it's that sort of creativity uh,
0: just one thing I want to share Chris, since financing is my world, I think a lot of times developing this distinction between financing and funding is important. Like, uh, and I think that uh, I mean financing, as you know, is bringing the actual cash to do the construction. Funding is figuring out who's going to pay for it. And I think that you know more and more as I'm seeing internationally, even since my focus is outside of America. I think more and more what I'm finding with the fiber networks, particularly rural fiber networks, is that if the funding equation can be solved, where an entity can say, you know, I will assume demand risk, then the financing follows very easily. And uh, it's this, this is, uh, you know, another time I'd love to discuss this concept of the availability payment scheme with you. It's something that was used in Indonesia. And uh, I really hope that that's something that, you know, we get to see more of uh, in, uh, in, in, in parts of uh, America.
2: We could probably simplify a little bit by just saying that almost all of the challenge is in who bears the risk and, and I think this is something that that we have government specifically to accomplish things we can't do individually. You know, it's about like solving things. It's about bearing risk, and so you know. I, so I will. Have, no,
0: I will stop you there. I'll stop you there. I'll, okay. I'll. I'll say this, Chris. That see, risk is a spectrum. Risk is a spectrum. Just like trust is a spectrum. Risk is a spectrum. Like risk to do what? Right. And I think the more that that spectrum can be broken down the easier risk digestion can be can become. Like, honestly, like this is like, you know, if, what we're seeing work fairly well, but I mean, particularly with fiber and one scheme that I've seen work really well is if the private sector is told, hey, your responsibility is to ensure you construct it and you keep this thing on, we will find a way to pay you if you can keep this thing on, but we're going to pay you a fixed amount. You can't just keep charging us more and more as more and more customers start using this. That is, Create some very interesting set of incentive structures where the private sector is now incentivized to build a cost-effective uh, solution. Mm-hmm. They are incentivized to put up the money upfront. They are incentivized to take the risk upfront. And the public sector, which could be the city or the universal service fund or the or the or or the local municipality, is basically saying, "We know there is demand for it. We know that whatever return you need, this fixed return you need, we will ensure you get that." And basically, then what the city is basically saying is, you know, there is a there's going to be a bit of a shortfall in the initial years, in the initial years, let's say your take rate is like 20%. So there's going to be a bit of a shortfall that will be there to satisfy all the payment requirements. If literally the city just says, I'm willing to pay for this shortfall, and I will no longer be on the hook when this shortfall is not there, just that little tweak Mm -hmm. um, can start mobilizing an incredible amount of dollars. And so I think, I think this is where I think like it's important to draw that distinction that, you know, what are we, who is bearing exactly which risk if the public sector is, and this is where I I, I, I sometimes get a bit frustrated and perhaps because, you know, I, I mean, for me, financing is my world, right? Like everyone's been talking about, oh, internet is critical infrastructure. Everyone's talking about access <laughs> to internet, right? And like, okay, now what, right? If you think it's critical infrastructure, then there is no question about demand. Then there is no question about demand. Yes, public sector, please come and assume demand risk. Because if you come and assume demand risk, I can guarantee you that for every public dollar, you will mobilize twenty dollars from the private sector. I feel like you know there is like uh, there is just so much uh, uh, more sort of work and education that needs to be done. Uh, it's just like this distinction between funding and financing and understanding the type of risk.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, let me just say that I think. Um, it's definitely also slightly different challenges when you're talking about a first network versus um, uh, an area in which there already are some networks that are serving some part of the population um, where they have um, political power to try to shape the solutions. That's just where I think it starts to get a little bit more complicated, but I um, I very much appreciate your points on that. And, um, and I think that's where it's important that the government makes sure that if it is going to take on risk, that it is – for the benefit of the community and not some well-connected political actor.
0: Totally, totally with you. The more we rewrite incentive structures, right? Like it's like, um, it's incentive like stru- the, the digital divide is a byproduct of incentive structures. Mm-hmm. And unless those incentive structures are tweaked, there is no way that, you know, we can, uh, we can change this, uh, this little puzzle. Um, but um, I, I'm super encouraged to to hear that for you, like you can see the puzzle as solved and you can, you can see it happening in a couple of years. Um, which brings me to my next question. You know, we've always talked about community broadband. We've talked about the specific communities you've on. I want to shift gears and focus a bit more on ILSR um, and understand how you guys measure success. I want to understand uh, for you that, you know, if you're looking... If we fast forward two years, right, or three years, and you're looking back, like, what does amazing look like for you? What does success look like as ILSR?
2: For a lot of years, we've seen linear growth in municipal networks and in um, even cooperatives. In many ways, I think, you know, an amazing success is is um, much faster growth than that it's entirely possible to see exponential growth uh, for several years of municipal broadband. Um, And so that would be one solution. And I think in order to get that, I don't think we can see that kind of growth with the retail model where the cities are themselves offering services themselves. I only think we can see that growth with an open access model where they're enabling others, whether it's one partner or ideally multiple partners and ideally, ideally, um, you know, different services. And so, you know. I love what Utopia is doing. I love what the, the what the um, has been accomplished in Washington with the public utility districts. You know, we have about thirty open access networks in the United States, and most of them are ones in which you can sort of you can get vanilla from this company, vanilla from that company, or vanilla from this other company. Now, what I find so exciting about Ammon and the work that entry point is doing, and, and I think there's others that are trying to do it as well is this idea of like well, maybe I want to get vanilla from them and chocolate from them, and I want to get strawberry and You know, and coconut cream from this other person all at once. Can we do that? Um, this idea of like it 's not just internet service but um, but um, different kinds of services telehealth is an obvious one but at a certain point it 's hard to predict because in this world we would see innovation that 's I think very hard to predict right now and so I think the most amazing outcome would be having you know rom- dramatic growth in municipal networks that would really catalyze this open access approach with new markets being created and really seeing what kind of innovation we could drive. It's possible that in a few years after that, we would say, you know what? No, most people just want internet access. They want IP services and we can do everything over that, but I'm not convinced that that's true. And, and I really think we should give it a good chance. So, I mean, that's what I've been, what I've been hoping for. And I feel like it's worth saying though, it's hard for us to know how successful we've been. Um, because so much of what we do is based on a decentralized strategy. We try to provide materials in ways that we can't track how they're all being used, in part because I think the effort to track makes them less useful. Um, We try to make materials that others can use without us knowing about it, so they can just go out, they can iterate, they can use our materials, and they can do their own thing. And so we're not a central point of failure. Um, And so that just makes it harder for us to know where we're having as much of an impact. And I think that's a, a trade-off for a decentralized structure. I think, I think it's why we've been so successful in this area. Um, but it's also sometimes, you know, I'm trying to tell a funder that, that we've been a good investment and it can be hard <laughs> to tell them exactly how.
0: Man, for, honestly, for what it's worth, I mean, I think, I think you guys add a phenomenal amount of value. I mean, I can speak for myself, like your organization has made a monumental difference in the work that I do. Uh, in terms of, you know, not just teaching me theory, but showing real examples and, and then helping me point other people to so many examples that are sadly opaque, you know, like, honestly, the world doesn't know that America has the connectivity problem. The world doesn't mm-hmm. know. Most amer I live in Silicon Valley. Like, honestly, I have, I have, I mean, I've been here for now two and a half years. Not a single person knows about this crazy cool network in Ammon, Idaho. <laughs> you know, it's like just like a two-hour flight but like no one knows and so you know going back to this thing that you talked about you know the your saddam example it's like information's out there but like i mean so much of it you know capturing attention is the problem so i mean look i think your organization is i mean you know i mean i i've once been a funder it's i think probably one of the best investments i've made and i want to do more of. And so this one thing i want to ask you you know if you'd like to share with your uh, listeners, you know, how can we support this more? Like what more can we do? Because I think that, um, you know, yes, it's a challenge measuring exact impact of ILSR, but I think, you know, just qualitatively speaking for myself, just the fact that you can point examples, help create community, help build bridges you know, between a Pakistani guy like me sitting in Silicon Valley, wanting to do Internet for all in his part of the world, with you know communities in rural America, like that's incredible, right? So, so I'd like to know, like, what's your message to your listeners? How can we do more? Because personally, I'd love to do more, and I'm sure there are other people who'd like to do more. <laughs> uh, tell us. Well,
2: there's a there's an irony in my answer because I am. I'm sadly overwhelmed in email. Uh, I have a wonderful team um, and uh, we get more requests than, than we can help with. Um, but my answer in some ways is, is letting us know what resources you need. One of the ways that we decide, oh, we need a new fact sheet or we should do a report on this is if we get questions from people in which we're like, we know what the answer is, but we don't have a place to point to explain it. Um, because I don't want to send the same email 20 times. Um and so, you know, if I find myself it's, for instance, we're, lately we've been talking with some cities about digital divide issues in the wake of the pandemic and, you know, it's one of those things where it's, okay, we should have collected the advice that we've been giving to these community after community into a short document that then we can give to them so that when we talk to them, you know, they've already seen the basic the uh, basic um, steps that we would recommend, and we can talk about them and rather than spending an hour explaining that, they can spend ten minutes reading it, and then we can just move on to higher value conversation um, but but it 's not always clear what is most valuable for people, like where the where the hangups are why aren 't we seeing more municipal networks develop and I think a lot of people would say because of it 's hard to finance, and i don 't know that that 's true. Um, whether it's financing or funding. Um, I think generally, if a city is saying that, it's because they haven't made it a big enough priority. And the question is, how do you make it a big enough priority? Um, because one of the reasons our analysis hinges on local governments is they have access to capital when they want to. Um, also true of state and federal government, frankly. Um, and so it's a question of, of priorities. And so for us, I think it is a question of, okay, what materials do we need to produce that will help folks that are active on the ground or may already be on city council or a mayor, but how will they convince others around them that this is a priority worth investing in? Um, I think that's, you know, where we're constantly trying to figure out how making sure that the, the time we're spending into creating resources is making the right resources.
0: That's really interesting. I think, you know, my two cents over there, Chris, would be that, uh, as with the influx of information attention is becoming scarce and a lot of times people find it hard to internalize information that is written in text form and hmm. I think maybe I should do an like, audio you know, show. one sort of thought could be. <laughs> no well no I, I i think you know honestly it's like it no it, it's something more basic right like i mean if there's like I mean, if there's like a like a Zoom room, like people can tune into where, you know, you've got some well-wisher listeners who are willing to share their knowledge. Because I think a lot of times, like, you know, it's that human touch that's also required with a bit of hand-holding that's needed, right? To say that, hey, look, if you need to just talk to someone about getting mm-hmm. this initiative off-ground, give us a call. I mean this is something I can empathize with, right? Like you guys do so much at ILSR with such few resources that, you know, a part of me thinks that, you know, a listener or two who you feel has now a good enough grasp on some of these issues, if they could sort of become volunteers, I mean, I'm willing to totally become a volunteer for that, right? Like if you need me at any point to say, Hey, you know, here's a town getting started, you know, they could use a conversation or two. Are you cool with talking to them periodically? Like I would totally mm-hmm. sign up and I think a lot of other people would. And I think that is maybe just. Yeah, that's a good idea. I mean,
2: one way to perhaps start that would be once a month having a kind of open Zoom call where people could bring their questions yeah. and chat about it for an hour and hear from others who might have similar challenges. We did that, I don't know five years ago. And, um, we did it twice. There wasn't a lot of turnout, but a lot's changed since then. So I could see trying to do a, a series of those where, um, that could be the first start where you come to sort of an open discussion. Um, and then may get paired off with people like you.
1: Yeah,
0: no, and you know, I think like, uh, I mean, I think this is a kind of the challenge with internalization is like, you know, it's like, you know, you know, that cliche, right? Like, it's not a cliche. It's like nice saying that when, when the student is ready, <laughs> the master emerges. It's like, unless the listener is really ready to absorb the lesson, there's no point. And so I feel like, you know, maybe sort of one hack around that could be that, you know, like scheduling something. If it could literally just be like, you know, a room that is open, like mm-hmm. for four hours a day, which is just, you know, I mean, manned by or or, or or like, you know, held by like one individual, either in your org or someone. And it's the idea is that like, there's this little, there's this little room, <laughs> there's this little cafe, virtual cafe that's open and you can just get in there and you can have a chat and it can be a very general chat. And I think like,
2: Office hours. you know, maybe,
0: and this is something I've been thinking about, about, about the world as well, right? That, you know, how do we create those spaces, where, you know, more fluid dialogue can happen. But good to know, good to know. And, I'm, and I'd and i be very interested, you know, in what sort of some of the other listeners uh, who are um, listening and think about ways we can support uh, ILSR beyond financial contributions because I think what you guys do is amazing. And uh, I mean, any any just about everyone I've come across is a huge fan of you and this show, which brings me to my last and final question, Chris. And that is that, we can see internet, broad rural broadband, or God—I mean, you know, God willing—I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm optimistic. I think America will solve its broadband problems the next five, six years, and I think after that, it'll be really exciting to see what this economic engine does. Because you know, I've always said this—that you know, it's the biggest economy in the world with the worst <laughs> broadband ever. Imagine this economy, this sort of spirit getting like, you know, uh, a Singapore-style or South Korea-style broadband, what's going to happen to America then? So, I mean, I remain very book for America, but this brings me to that question. Mm-hmm. When that happens, when Internet for All has happened across America, what are you going to do? What's next for Chris Mitchell once there is no connectivity battle to fight? Because I do think that day will come, and I'd uh, be curious to know what's next for you after this world.
2: I'm not entirely sure that you're right about there being no battle to fight, but I think you might be right in the larger question in that I think my skill set and personality does better on the frontier than it does in sort of a well-established field. Um, and, and I think there will be fights on connectivity. Um, I, if I look at the history of electrification, the, the, the big wall street interests are constantly trying to figure out how to take over something that is so essential because when something becomes essential, it means people will pay a lot for it. And I think you may have heard me talk about this before. I mean, if if something horrible happened and my and our electricity prices went up by a factor of 20 times or 100 times, what are you going to do? Not use electricity? <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, no, you're, you're still going to use it. A light at night, um, being able to keep food cold. Um, these things are essential. And so Wall Street, you know, sort of minded folks, they know that. And so they're trying to figure out how to get a piece of that action. And we're going to see that with internet access for a long time. And so I think there will be work to be done long after we have accomplished a lot of the goals that we've set out. Um, but like you said, I, you know, I think, um, I, I like to be in areas where there's a little bit more of a frontier and, um, and I mean, I, this isn't as much of a frontier, I guess, in some ways. I mean, it's something that's been a, a fight for a long time, but it's, I, I feel like something that it needs a different approach, and that's housing. When I look at the racial inequity yeah. that America has in particular, so much of it seems to be centered around housing, housing wealth, the legacy of it. Um, you know, my family went from working class to being very successful in part because of the GI Bill um, my father served. That was a mechanism that um, he then, you know, did very hard work. Both of my parents worked extremely hard. Um, and and yet um, they also, you know, benefited from being able to live in any neighborhood that they wanted to. They benefited in, in many ways from um, a privilege we haven't extended to lots of people. And I... I, you know, you and I talked a little bit on LinkedIn where I was saying, I think housing is one of the most important things. And you were saying, what about internet access? And and I think internet access is important, but like intergenerational wealth from housing is like, is so important for for how we've built America. And so that's something I could see myself just really wanting to get, bury myself in. Um, that and also um, family leave policy is something that I just think is really important. When I look at, again, how important family is and how many millions, tens of millions of Americans aren't able to care for loved ones, it, it, um, whether it's parents or whether it's children um, you know that one has to care for, it, it ruins lives when you can't be there. And I just, I feel like for all our material wealth, we need to have a, a good solution that is both business friendly and family friendly to making sure that um that we can do that so i mean it's policy issues like i mean i'm i'm interested in policy and so those are two that i just i come back to
0: very interesting one if i may suggest this, because i mean i am pretty much i say still i can I, I see wall street's perspective quite a bit sure. so i need to respond to something that you said it's like Consider understanding incentive structures, right? Like I'll say this, like corporations are not evil, right? Like no CEO is sitting there saying I wanna go to my people. It's like <laughs> it's like what gets what gets measured gets. Right. What gets measured gets done, right? It's like it's like if shareholders are saying we're going to hire a management team to maximize total shareholder return, then that management team is going to try and maximize total shareholder return. And if the underlying structure is looking to uh, you know uh, is 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 going to result in a market failure. I mean, I think you raised a really good point about electricity. Like one of the reasons we don't seeing a twenty x increase in electricity is because it is a rate based driven right. business model. It's like based on a a, a fixed return on capital telecom is based on average revenue per user, which is high in urban areas, low in rural areas, or like there's, you, you earn more in urban areas. And so I think like, you know, one area, I, if I, 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 you know, consider it's worth sort of looking into, and I think you're so well placed to like bridge that gap is, 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 you know, why do corporations behave the way they do? It's like, you know, literally, if there's a, if there's a way mm-hmm. to tweak that incentive structure, you know, I mean, behaviors may change, and um, so just something I thought I'd leave you with, Chris.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think I think you're familiar with some of our our other work across ILSR. Um, you know, my colleague Stacy Mitchell, very yeah. focused on this. Um, and you guys are related, right? No, we're not. You're not no, <laughs> no relation. No okay. relation. Yeah. No, it's it's a, okay. it's an ongoing joke in which I always pretend that she's just embarrassed that I somehow ended up with a name that's the same as hers. Ah. um but the the thing is that I, I feel like um, the incentives are essential, and that's that 's what i 've come down to. I agree with you one hundred percent on that, and the challenge is where the incentives are set by corrupt legislation because the people that have economic power write the rules, and that 's where our fundamental analysis is that by decentralizing power, it doesn 't make it inevitable. That, that, mm-hmm. that, you know, the common man or common woman would write the rules. But it's just the closer we get power to Main Street, the harder it is for massive corporations to, to basically write all the rules. And that's, in short, what we do at ILSR is try to figure out how to get better rules so we can have a stronger economy that is more centered on, you know, community values and benefiting the communities.
0: Amazing, amazing. on that, I'm totally with you, Chris. It was an absolute pleasure. This is my first ever interview. I've never <laughs> interviewed anyone. So thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. yeah, uh, really enjoyed talking to you. really enjoyed learning about your uh, your formative years and uh, best of luck with with what's next i I can't say it strongly enough. I think I think your organization is a is a is a national treasure, and I really hope that you know, more people in America in the coming days and years will recognize the immense contributions that you and your colleagues have made. So thank
2: you. Thank you, Asvi. When when we put out the idea of someone interviewing me and then um, and you wrote back that you were interested, the first thing was everyone on my team were all like, oh, well, that's obvious. He'll be great. Like, and my second thought was, oh, man, this is going to be so much of a harder interview than I expected because you have a, you have a, a real, you have a way of cutting to the important parts of arguments. So I'm really glad you stepped up for it and I'm, I'm really appreciative.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I look forward to listening to this and and hi to uh, all your colleagues. And I hope this madness ends, man. I'd love to come down to Minnesota and meet you guys. In person. Yes,
2: well, you'll be invited as soon as we have uh, some of this under control. Thank you, Chris.
1: That was Christopher talking with Asfi of NetEquity Networks. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadband bits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at Community Nets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at Muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast.